Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Well, you thought you could get rid of me, but somehow I've survived yet again. You know how when you drive, you have time to think, and the longer the drive, the more thinking you do? Well, on my long, very long annual trip to see some of my family, I was thinking of things to do with this podcast, and here's what I've come up with, at least for now. First, I'm shifting the days new episodes drop, as the original days actually caused a conflict with stuff I do for the church, and the church was there first. So my plan going forward is Tuesdays and Fridays. Second, occasionally life might get extra busy, and since this is one of those things that can be altered, at least until this becomes my full-time, highly paid, massively successful career, there may be times I'll shift or maybe miss an episode, although I'm going to try not to do that. Third, I've been thinking of some ideas I'd like to try, one of which will be segment three in this episode. Let me know what you think. Basically, I want to make sure I'm using this as a creative outlet for me, but at the same time bringing you thought-provoking, useful content with maybe a bit of humor mixed in. So, no harm in experimenting, right? As for today's episode, first we're going to talk about when helping someone with a crisis actually creates a bigger crisis. Then we'll learn how to be happy from a computer, and finally we're going to look into arguably the greatest experiment ever attempted. So, get your protest poster-making supplies out, just pay the extra few dollars per month for the faster internet speed already, and don your little round Benjamin Franklin spectacles, because after a little break, once again, here we go. Okay, I'm looking for an argument. Who wants to take me on? Here's my claim. We sure are living in some interesting times. Hmm? Anyone? Eh, didn't think so. So recently, on a 13-hour drive out to see my sister and her family, I had a little chance to talk to my daughter. Now understand, she's a 15-year-old female, so long discussions with dear old dad aren't in vogue right now. She just doesn't understand how hip and with it I am, but she'll come around eventually, I'd imagine. Anyway, I asked her what she'd been seeing on her social media platforms of choice, mainly Snapple Chat and Tickety Talk, about the latest Supreme Court rulings. She said that she's seeing a lot of stuff about abortion. I asked her what she was mostly seeing, and as I assumed, it was a bunch of teen girls, and women who want to be a bunch of teen girls, acting like a bunch of teen girls, wailing and lamenting the fact that we're in a lawless country where women are forced to become incubators by the white Christian fascist dictators. I mean, they didn't, you know, say that exactly, but if they knew what those words meant, eh, they'd agree with it. So, I asked her if she understood the Supreme Court's constitutionally correct ruling that Roe v. Wade was a poor ruling based on nothing and was now null and void. Her understanding wasn't great, but she knew one thing. Babies, regardless of their size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, are human and have the right to not be murdered. 
It gives me hope that while she's avoiding the hugs and rolling her eyes around like bowling balls and generally not paying attention, she's actually paying attention. I told her that when I grew up, one of the defining moments of my childhood was when the space shuttle Challenger exploded. I was in fourth grade, don't do the math. A small group of us were learning charades, you know, acting something out. It was part of our language class or something like that. Now, none of the classrooms had the TV cart. You know, the one with the 700-pound TV on the top, held down by a single worn-out bungee cord with basically shopping cart wheels on the bottom that was so top-heavy, if you looked at it wrong, it was likely to topple over and squash you. The teachers had the coverage of the launch on in their lounge, though, and whoever was in there was able to watch it. Our teacher's aide came into the classroom. Our teacher passively kind of just asked her how the launch went, to which she casually replied, it exploded. Now, the teacher was stunned. I was stunned, as I was one of the nerd kids that liked space stuff, and most of the kids kept eating paste or whatever they were doing. I remember that right after that, one of the guys in my class, who shall remain nameless, and yes, I do actually remember who it was, got up to do his charade. He started by squatting down, placed his arms above his head, palms together, then stood up slowly, then threw his arms wildly apart. You know, the Challenger explosion. I mean, even as fourth graders, we were all like, no, no, we can't do that. Anyway, I told her about that memory of mine, one that will stay with me forever. And then I told her that she is living through some unbelievable times, that this is one of the most amazing epics of American history to date. Starting with COVID, a pandemic, lockdowns, online school for everyone, the mask controversies, the so-called vax controversies, and now the Supreme Court overturned a ruling that nobody of my generation or those generations around me ever thought would be overturned. Additionally, they made very strong ruling for the Second Amendment, they ruled for the equal treatment of Christians, they ruled for the right to practice your religion, and they ruled that the unelected government bureaucracies aren't, in fact, lawmakers. I briefly explained these rulings, told her to remember 624-22, the day Roe fell, and told her to sear the last couple years into her memory, and to pay attention because we're about to see evil unleashed possibly like nothing we've ever seen before. To that end, I have a few articles that all kind of tie together that display this country and really much of the world taking sides. Taking sides on a political issue, but more importantly, taking sides on a spiritual issue. We can use as our base article, found on liveaction.org, headline, Five Reasons Why Senator Elizabeth Warren Is Wrong to Want to Shut Down Pregnancy Centers. Now, a pregnancy center is basically the polar opposite of an abortion mill, where an abortion slaughterhouse is interested in terminating your pregnancy and being very pushy about doing it, hiding any evidence that shows a developing child, moving you through as fast as possible, collecting their money, and offering the bare minimum of medical care or after-abortion care. A pregnancy center is a not-for-profit organization that will spend as much time as you want discussing your situation, They'll perform an ultrasound for free, clearly showing you what you're looking at, discussing options other than abortion. Many of them will approach these discussions from a Christian worldview without generally being pushy. And if the mother decides to have the baby, they'll offer months or even years of spiritual, emotional, and physical assistance. Put simply, abortion clinics are interested in killing children for fun and profit, 
Pregnancy centers love the mother and the baby, and that's all. But if you've seen any news as of late, you'll see Pocahontas herself, Elizabeth Warren, going absolutely ballistic that pregnancy centers feel they have the right, you know, to exist. She said, quote, Crisis pregnancy centers that are there to fool people looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down all around the country. She further described them as, quote, fake clinics that carry out, quote, torture on pregnant women. Somehow. Now, there used to be a time when a homicidal maniac like Grandma Warren would be either locked up, committed, or at least have her children show up, you know, and apologize that Granny hadn't been taking her meds. But today, she's all the rage. She's the hero of our story. And it's because she wants mothers and quasi-doctors to murder babies unencumbered. She doesn't even want mothers to be presented with the choice. With all the information, she just wants piles of shredded, dead baby parts to roll around in. One would almost think that's, um, sick or twisted, flat-out evil. Uh, you know, if one was thinking clearly. So Live Action is a pro-life advocacy group. And in their article, they lay out their five reasons why the hellbound Warren, those are my words, and... I feel pretty confident about saying that, is wrong for hating pregnancy centers. One, they save lives. Two, they serve millions of people every year. Three, they provide free, much-needed resources for the mother and the baby. I think the bullet points they outlined are worth repeating here. So I quote, Nearly 500,000 free ultrasounds, estimated value $139 million, 160,200 free STI-STD tests, estimated value $8 million. Nearly 732,000 free pregnancy tests, estimated value of $6.5 million. Free parenting and prenatal education programs, estimated value nearly $52 million. Post-abortive support for tens of thousands of clients, estimated value $3.2 million. Nearly 1.3 million packages of diapers, estimated value nearly $13 million. Over 2 million baby outfits, estimated value over $9 million. Over 30,000 car seats and nearly 20,000 strollers, estimated total value of over $2.6 million. Now, these were the numbers from 2019, the most recent year that the complete date is available, totaling about $270 million in donations. But remember, us pro-lifers only care about babies being born, and after that, hey, you're on your own, lady. It's funny how the political left and the unsaved, but I repeat myself, accuse the right and or Christians of doing exactly what they're doing or planning to do. They always tell on themselves. So... Maybe if someone says the pro-life crowd doesn't care, maybe you can politely tell them to shut their stupid screech holes. But say it nicely, then maybe add, bless your heart, for good measure. Now, as physically painful as it is to look at and listen to the cesspool of evil that is Elizabeth Warren, the reality is she's an unsaved, unrepentant, hell-bound sinner. Her master is Satan. She's a slave to sin. To expect her to embrace life, to eschew evil is stupid on our part. She, living in darkness, loving the darkness, should not be expected to act or think like a Christian. And, uh, ta-da, she doesn't. Enter the Episcopal Church. 
No, I'm not even going to pretend I know anything about the Episcopal Church. Using the extensive chart of world religions and cults from Answers in Genesis, it appears that post-Reformation, one branch of Protestantism was Anglicanism which further split into the Anglican Church in England, or the Church of England, the Independent Anglican Church, the Plymouth Brethren, which I'm not sure exists anymore, Methodism, which split into Methodist, Wesleyan, Nazarene, etc., Congregationalism, which is where we get the Congregational Churches as well as the Non-Denominational Churches, and finally the Episcopal Church. It was formed after the American Revolution as a split from the Church of England and as further sort of factioned into a few different country-specific branches. Every three years, the General Convention meets to conduct business, amend their constitution, adjust their canon, amend their Book of Common Prayer, adopt a budget, etc., etc. There are basically two houses or branches of the convention, the House of Deputies and the House of Bishops. And these are comprised of deputies, bishops, laypeople, etc. from each diocese. Each house can adopt resolutions on their own, but to become an act of the convention, officially adopted into the church, both houses must vote in the affirmative on the identical resolution during a single convention. All that said, through a few links, I finally came across a site called anglican.inc.ink. I've never heard of that one before, but that's okay. I really can't say for sure, but they appear to be an Anglican watchdog type of group that's reporting on the goings-on in the Anglican and Episcopalian world. They seem to be what I would call Bible-believing or conservative Christians rather than the progressive or liberal types of so-called Christians. Don't hold me to that, though. I'm really not sure, and for what I want to cover, it really doesn't matter. So they have two articles reporting on two resolutions that have been adopted by the House of Deputies, and they've been presented to the 80th General Council that just met July 8th through July 11th of 2022. One was adopted, one was not concurred to by the House of Bishops, so it was not adopted. I want to look at these two briefly, and this is where I'll warn you. Put your hand under your chin. I, I don't want you to pull a jaw muscle when it slams open. Or if you're driving, pay careful attention to where you're going. We don't need any accidents. Or maybe if you're in your office, close your door so your coworkers can't hear your very audible gasps. First was Resolution D076, entitled Addressing the Ongoing Harm of Crisis Pregnancy Centers. Now, this one was not passed in the convention, but it was adopted by the House of Deputies, which to me is bad enough. This had two basic points to the resolution. I'll read the points, then their explanation for the resolution, as you really need to hear this. And it reads as follows. Resolved, the House of Bishops concurring, which they did not, that the 80th General Convention denounces the work of crisis pregnancy centers, also known as pregnancy resource centers, and be it further resolved that the 80th General Convention apologizes for the Church's previous support of crisis pregnancy centers as detailed in Resolution 1994-D105. Now keep in mind here, remember, they're Christians. So what is their explanation for this attempted resolution? Again, I quote, 
Our church has regretfully been complicit in many horrific practices in the past with regard to unwed mothers and unplanned pregnancies. These include homes for unwed mothers run by the Episcopal Church in a number of dioceses, which often caused lasting harm for mothers and children who were subject to emotional abuse and forced adoption within those facilities. In the modern era, this practice has shifted to appear within the form of so-called crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers. These centers often misrepresent themselves as medical centers, providing factually inaccurate information to pregnant people. I want you to notice that. Pregnant people, not women. Providing factually inaccurate information to pregnant people about pregnancy, abortion, contraception, and fertility. These centers, in many cases, will offer ultrasounds to pregnant people without proper and appropriate medical training, potentially delaying entry into prenatal care or obscuring the risk of ectopic pregnancy. In addition, these centers directly pressure pregnant people to carry unplanned pregnancies to term, using tactics such as stigmatization to force a shift in an individual's plan for their pregnancies. Crisis pregnancy centers often provide free resources such as food, clothing, and necessary supplies to struggling individuals, making those resources contingent upon the pregnant person carrying their pregnancy to term. Crisis pregnancy centers are a wolf in sheep's clothing, purporting to be Christian centers offering love and acceptance to the needy, but instead engaging in duplicitous practices to force individuals to carry unplanned pregnancies to term. The Episcopal Church should prayerfully consider the role of these centers in the broader landscape of reproductive health care and repent from our past support. Are you still with me? Are you? Are you doing okay? <laughs> a wolf in sheep's clothing. Interesting choice of words. So they cite as their evidence essentially leftist studies. One that I looked at out of the three that they cited had basically nothing to do with what they were citing it for. And it was a study that included three crisis pregnancy centers in southern Louisiana and 114 women seeking abortions, and that's all. And based on their findings, the author of the study, a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, generalized assumptions for the entire country and all crisis pregnancy centers. It's a garbage study. And based on that, I didn't bother to look at the others. I didn't really see a point. I don't think any further commentary is needed on this resolution. It speaks for itself. It's an evil resolution brought by woke morons adopted by people that are either evil or stupid. Maybe that's just my opinion. The other resolution, D-083, entitled Addressing the Erosion of Reproductive Rights and Autonomy. Now, this one was adopted by the convention, so it is now an official position of the church. Well, quote, church. This one has five points to the resolution and a short explanation for why it was brought. So reading the points of the resolution first, we read, Resolved that the 80th General Convention recognizes that pregnancy and childbirth are dangerous undertakings that risk permanent disability and death for those who bear children. And be it further resolved that the Episcopal Church reaffirms that parenthood, quote, should be initiated only advisedly and in full accord with this understanding of the power to conceive and give birth, which is bestowed by God. 
and be it further resolved that the Episcopal Church recognizes that access to abortion is a key element in preserving the health, independence, and autonomy of those who can bear children, and be it further resolved that the 80th General Convention affirms that all Episcopalians should be able to access abortion services and birth control with no restriction on movement, autonomy, type, or timing, and be it further resolved that the 80th General Convention understands that the protection of religious liberty extends to all Episcopalians who may need or desire to access, to utilize, to aid others in the procurement of, or to offer abortion services. So a few points. First of all, pregnancy and childbirth are not dangerous, not in general, and definitely not in any developed country, such as the United States. That is an oft-repeated lie from the bloodthirsty left. Look it up. Second, notice that they don't limit it to even the big three, rape, incest, life of the mother, which together account for about 1% or less of all abortions. They don't copy Roe, stating it should be safe, legal, and rare, and be in the first trimester. They say it should be anywhere, anytime, any time in the pregnancy. And then third, they dare to bring religious liberty into this. Those blasphemous demons, they claim, with no biblical backing noted, that murdering an image bearer of God is religious liberty. This is evil. So what was their explanation? Well, again, I read, As a church, we have held nuanced, carefully considered stances on access to abortion since the 1960s. In the current political climate, there is increasing political pressure restricting access to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care above and beyond our own faithfully considered boundaries. In some cases, these political and legal restrictions are so broadly constructed that they disallow access to necessary health care for miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, a deadly condition, and contraception. This resolution reaffirms our stance, reemphasizes our stance, and underscores the religious foundation for our stance. I'd like to point out, Your Honor, commandment number nine, don't lie. Their explanation was an outright blasphemous by stating that they had faithfully considered boundaries on abortion. Lie. I don't know if they're pulling their information from MSNBC or the Witch's Coven of the View, but their claim that any state anywhere in the United States is restricting abortion in cases of miscarriage, if the baby's dead, it can't be aborted. That's just stupid. Or ectopic pregnancy, and I know of no state that discounts legitimate life-of-the-mother situations, and if there is in fact one or two... There are nearly every other state in the Union that could be utilized, but like I said, that's just not a thing. And contraception. Not one state has or would make contraception illegal. Again, that's nothing but a blatant lie used to evoke emotion. <laughs> and they're evoking it. So this is purely evil. And they call themselves a Christian church. I'd love to hear how that works for them. But, but then again, it'd probably be better if I didn't as this type of cow manure, moronic, evil, demonic garbage coming out of a so-called church, like I said, it, it definitely evokes an emotion in me. 
At the end of Joshua's life, he gathered the tribes of Israel, brought the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers together before God. He laid out a very summarized history of their nation, their enslavement, their exodus, the promised land, and the various battles, etc. He then made very plain the choice they had. Chapter 24, verses 14 through 15 state, Now, therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are at a point in history, more than any time in the history of our nation, where the choice is becoming, and I'd argue has become, very plain, very obvious, very clear. The grooming of our children, the transgender agenda, the legalization of drugs, the dismissal of crime, the homosexual agenda, the losses of freedom, the massive influx of perversion, and I think one of the top, if not the top issue, the murder of unborn children, image bearers of God so-called abortion. All of these should be screaming to humanity, choose you this day whom you will serve. There is no longer any room to sit on the fence. Is you is, or is you isn't? That's the question. Jesus in his letter to the church in Laodicea says, quote, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We can't be lukewarm. We must know what we believe. We must profess what we believe. As of right now, it's still relatively easy for most of us to live our Christian life outwardly. That time appears to be quickly coming to an end. We will be canceled, shamed, protested, harassed. And as we all know, what follows is imprisonment, torture, and murder. And yet we must stand strong. We were never promised life would be a bowl of cherries or a sack of Milky Ways. We were promised that the world would hate us because it hates Jesus. We were promised trouble, strife, and persecution. The time of the martyrs hasn't gone away. It's simmered and was relegated to the third world nations, but it's coming again. Satan is definitely, obviously making a push. Now that said, we can stand strong and tall. We can take heart. We can be of courage. Satan is nothing more than a created being in full subjection to God. He can only do what he's allowed to do. God's plan is being fulfilled precisely as he designed to the very last Adam. God is fully sovereign. He is not wringing his hands, fretting about what's going on. He's not worried that Satan might win. He didn't have butterflies in his stomach when the announcements came down that another Supreme Court decision had been released, just hoping that it was the ruling that Roe had been overturned. This world, although obviously increasing in chaos and wickedness, is in subjection to and completely controlled by God. And that's where we can place our hope. That's where we can be unwavering and bold in what we believe. So let me encourage you to be bold. Do not be afraid to be a Christian. And also, let me encourage you, if you're struggling with how you should think about all of these very divisive issues, find a biblically solid Christian pastor to speak to. Read your Bible, learn all you can, and regardless of what the world tells you, follow what God has told all of us in his word. If I were to take a poll asking, do you want to be happy? I'd be willing to bet that nearly all would respond with, uh, yes. 
I say nearly all because let's be honest, it doesn't matter what the question is, there's always a small percentage, say 10%, that choose the non-typical answer. Now, what if I told you that as you age, happiness is practically and relatively easily within your grasp? All you need to do is follow the orders being given to you. Well, found on SciTechDaily.com, headline, Harvard Developed AI Identifies the Shortest Path to Human Happiness. Looking at the words that this website chose to use to construct their headline, we find Harvard, that carries a certain prestige, AI, artificial intelligence, smart computers able to learn and grow that are all the rage right now. I mean, that sounds okay. Shortest path to Yes, the last thing I have time for is diddy-bopping. We need to get to where we're going right now, not fiddle around, wasting precious time. And we see happiness. And there we go. That's our goal. To be happy. So, putting it all together, we have very smart people using even smarter computers that have developed the most efficient, time-saving path to happiness. Sounds fantastic, right? Well, let's take a look at what the article has to say, and then I'll weigh in. The article focuses on work being done by a company called Deep Longevity. If you go to their website, the first highlighted statement you see is, Aging is humanity's biggest problem. Ah, well, I'm aging, some would argue poorly, which is hurtful, but their perception is their reality, so I can't dispute them. That's not the point here. It seems that this company is focused on extending life, but making sure that it's extended in a way that also improves your life and lifestyle. If your life is awful... Well, my guess is that you might get a bit more of an end-of-life care rather than an all-lives-are-precious-here's-the-real-treatment cure. They look at a variety of aging clocks, including some of your and my classic favorites, the lifestyle clock, the deep microbiome, deep transcriptome, deep hematological, the psychological, the deep HRV-based, the deep methylation, the photo, and the behavior clock. According to their website, they state, quote, We provide customers with the most efficient, reliable, and useful aging and longevity clocks to address their needs. We aspire to be a leader in the field of machine learning for personalized preventive health care and longevity interventions, utilizing advanced deep learning algorithms and generative Approaches, we develop novel tools for aging research that can be applied in many industries to make people live better, longer, and healthier lives. And then they show a number of charts, graphs, illustrations, etc. It all looks very nicely done. Couldn't tell you if it means anything, as I'm not willing to put my information in the system to uh, test it. Link in the notes. Have at it if you'd like. Let me know. Back to the article at hand. So this company, working with Harvard Medical School, is trying to come up with a comprehensive method to address mental health. By using gathered data from the Midlife in the United States study, which is probably my favorite of the Midlife studies, and a psychological survey, they created two models to determine a person's psychological health in 10 years. Using this data, they predict the, quote, trajectories of the human mind as it ages. They could just ask me, uh, down, sharply, the trajectory is down, but they apparently wanted more specific information. (laughs) Whatever. Using this information, they've shown that the ability to form meaningful connections, be mentally autonomous, and attain environmental mastery, and no, if you don't know what those mean, I'm not telling you, because I don't know either, They say all of those grow with age. 
But as anyone cresting 40 can tell you, despite what we like to believe, the personal progress declines, and I find this may be the most interesting point. The sense of having a purpose in life starts to fade after 40 to 50 years. So basically, if I were to sum this up, as you age, your wisdom increases, your mental and physical abilities will decrease for a good chunk of your life, but your sense of purpose, that starts to drop around midlife, around the time of the so-called midlife crisis, and the general time menopause starts to rear its head. A second model was developed based off of the same data, and this is basically data fed into a computer, artificial intelligence, allowing the algorithm to process the data, organize the data, cluster the data, with the intention of creating an automated, quote, recommendation engine for mental health applications. The AI engine self-determines who it thinks are going to develop depression, and it creates what it determines are the steps to the quickest path of mental stability, and it does this on an individualistic basis. The chief longevity officer, so I, I guess the CLO, of Deep Longevity said, quote, existing mental health applications offer generic advice that applies to everyone yet fits no one. We have built a system that is scientifically sound and offers superior personalization. In order to try to show what they can do, they're offering a free web service called FutureSelf. This is a free online psychological test, which then generates a report using the AI engine that gives some initial steps to being more mentally fit. You can then enroll in a program that will give you continuing guidance along your mental health journey. I'm fairly certain that's not going to be free. The authors intend to do a follow-up study on, quote, the effect of happiness on psychological measures of aging. So, what's my point in this article? Well, honestly, I applaud the effort. I think that working to address mental health, especially and increasingly these days, in general, and as people age, is a noble cause. I also think that there could be some value in using AI to try to process data, recognize trends, recognize shifts in trends and demographics, etc. Although I hate to admit it, a computer can recognize that stuff much faster than a human can. That being said, not a fan of AI in general. I know, and I've said before, that there are some that are in a state of panic over AI. You know, it'll destroy the world. Well, I still say that AI is only as good as the programmers that program it. In other words, the AI has to work within parameters of its programming, and its programming must have parameters or it won't have anywhere to start or go. Now, I know, there are those that will argue that I'm wrong, and maybe I am, but I just don't see a T-1000 blobbing its way around the world looking for John Connor anytime soon. So that begs the question, what did Harvard and Deep Longevity program this to accept and not accept as permissible paths to happiness? As I see it, there are multiple paths for psychological care in the world at this time. They can break down into two general categories, humanist and religious. On the humanist side, you have the DSM-5, the Bible such as it is, for the secular and to some degree the Christian-based counseling and psychiatry world. On the religious front, you have the Bible, which is the Bible used for biblical counseling, and to some degree, and less than you'd think, Christian counseling. I do realize that there are other religious faiths, and yes, you could also go down that route, but from my religious perspective, Christianity is the only true religion. The rest are man-made religions, either using Christianity as a base for twisted beliefs, or just man-made wants and desires dressed up as a religion. So using my idea of the two general categories of psychiatric care, I wonder what Harvard and Deep Longevity have included in their AI.
I wonder what parameters they've placed on what the AI can investigate and what it can recommend. Realistically, the easiest route is to program in the DSM-5, let the AI evaluate data and determine the right path within the accepted manual. But if you allow it to venture outside of that, would it not come to the recommendation, I'd argue in all cases, but let's say that at least in some cases, that getting into the Bible, learning about the Christian religion, finding salvation, thus peace, joy, hope, and love in Christ, would that be a possibility? What are the odds that this AI ever allows that recommendation? On the other end of the spectrum, unless it has roadblocks in the recommendations for some people, why would it not recommend suicide for some? An emotionless computer, just as a matter of probability, would have to arrive at times at a point where a logical path to happiness can't be found, or at least not a viable, realistic, reasonable path. So the best path is to just not play the game. That seems only logical to me. And then, honestly, I'd have to back up a tick and ask, what is their definition of happiness? Happiness is great. I like to be happy, and as I said, if I were to take a poll, I'd wager that 90% of people surveyed would say they'd like to be happy. But is happiness the goal? From a Christian standpoint, I'd argue that uh, no. Happiness is not a life goal and was never a life goal. Happiness is nothing more than a fickle, shallow emotion or feeling. It's logically no different than being hungry or cold or scared. It's something that can and will come and go, and because of the shallowness of it, it can be attained and lost easily. Now, I can be happy when someone gives me a nice, delicious, perfectly cooked ribeye. I could also be happy when I thought my shoelace was in a knot, but then it wasn't. Or when I really have to go to the bathroom and an exit with a gas station is right up ahead. Those things... Oh, those can make me happy. I can have happiness taken away when I have an argument with my kid, or a pet dies, or I have a leak in the roof. Happiness, I'd argue, should never be a goal. It's a nice consequence of specific scenarios, but it shouldn't be a goal. If you do a word search in the Bible for the word happy, I use the KJV, happy appears 28 times, while versions of joy appears 201 times. The word joy is found in 40 of the 66 books of the Bible, 21 books of the Old and 19 books of the New Testament. In general, I don't think we should draw conclusions based solely on word counts. That said, I think it should cause us to take note. Maybe, just maybe, the widespread use of that word should tell us something. David and other psalmists reference joy quite often, many times instructing the reader to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Psalm 30 references the temporary nature of sadness and the overall default position of joy. David says that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And in this joy, in God's mercy on him, sparing his life on this earth, David is able to offer his songs of praise and worship because of the joy that he possesses. Over and over, David speaks of the joy of the Lord, the joy of his salvation, etc. And although those in the Old Testament could rejoice in God and the salvation God offered over and over in the many blessings God has bestowed on them, their joy was not complete, or at least not fully able to be known yet. 
Moving into the New Testament, we're told that the birth of Jesus was going to bring with it, quote, joy and gladness. We see that in the Gospels, in the parable told by Jesus, the faithful servants were bid to enter into the joy of thy Lord as their reward for their faithfulness. Jesus, in John 16, echoes the sentiments of Psalm 30. In speaking of his imminent crucifixion and resurrection, he says that they will be sorrowful for a little while, but that sorrow will turn to joy, just as a woman who gives birth has sorrow during the process, but that temporary sorrow gives ways to exceeding joy at the birth of that child. Although Jesus knew that his followers would be sorrowful for his death, his resurrection will give them joy that cannot be taken from them. Paul, in speaking of how we as Christians, those loosed of the bonds of the Old Testament laws and regulations, should be mindful of causing others to stumble by imposing our freedoms on their consciences, speaks of the dietary restrictions of the old law. But again, he makes reference to the temporary versus the permanent. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The temporary will pass, but the eternal is eternal. Paul reiterates this in Galatians by naming the desires of the flesh that are to be fought against, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, etc. These are the things that are earthly, temporary, unfulfilling, and ultimately can be a litmus test regarding the state of our salvation or lack thereof. But Paul goes on to outline the fruits that should be evident and should be growing in the life of the saved individual, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this passage, I think, by far encompasses the permanence of joy versus fleeting happiness. The desires of the flesh can bring temporary pleasure and happiness. Unless you're a liar, you have to admit that. Gratifying our fleshly nature can easily bring a sense of happiness or euphoria for a time, but joy is a fruit of those that have the Holy Spirit, those that are saved. We know that all the Father has given to the Son will be held tightly by the Son and also held tightly by the Father. In other words, once saved, always saved. If we are saved, truly saved, we possess the fruits of the Spirit. We will all have our stronger and weaker fruits, but they should all be present and they should all be growing over time. That's the process of sanctification. Because salvation is permanent, because the fruits of the Spirit are guaranteed, that means that joy is permanent and guaranteed for those that are saved. It may not always be bubbling over, it may not always be evident to all, but it's always there, and it's always being grown, and it's always there for us to fall back to. As Nehemiah said, quote, The joy of the Lord is your strength. For the Christian, when the temporary things of this world, no matter the size, falls apart, We can fall back on the joy that we have, knowing these things will pass away, but Jesus, our salvation, the truth of the Bible, will never pass away. In our deepest sadness and despair, we know that God is not shaken. We know that God has not been caught off guard. We know that God has not lost control. Our joy can come from knowing that God is in control of every molecule in the entire creation and every situation, good or bad, and he will never falter or fail. We can find joy in knowing that God is sovereign, that all things work for his glory, and we're promised that for his children, all things will work together for good. We're not promised that we'll see that final working out, but we can rejoice as the many fathers of our faith, as the martyrs that went before us, that no matter what the situation, God's design, God's plan is perfectly playing out and precisely on schedule. That does not always bring immediate relief from temporary pain, but it will bring permanent relief to the trials, tribulations, and pain that this life can and will bring. And that, 
that's what the AI system that Harvard and Deep Longevity developed should conclude in all cases if it were allowed to by the programmers. If allowed to explore all avenues of improving mental health, dealing with depression, joy versus happiness, it would offer recommendations like, have you prayed about it? Or, or like, did you read your Bible today? Or maybe, are you currently a born-again Christian? And if not, why not? Can you imagine if the AI recommendation bot started throwing out suggestions like that? That's what it should do, as that's the only path to true joy. And joy, above all temporary providers of happiness, is what people are missing in their lives. As we disconnect the world and society from the truth of God, the truth of the Bible, we disconnect from the one thing that offers true joy. And then we develop manuals, techniques, workarounds, temporary fixes, and computer programs to help people find a fleeting moment of happiness in a joyless existence full of hopelessness, ending in death and a life of eternal torment in hell because they were never saved, just offered surface man-made solutions for their lives. As Christians, we personally hold, and we hold the keys, to true joy. We need to be ready always to offer the lost world what they can't find through their own devices, no matter how hard they try, because they either won't look or can't see the true truth. I'd like to try some different segments in this podcast, and although I know that writing comments is not what most people, including me, do with podcasts that they listen to, regardless of how much podcasters beg for likes, shares, and comments, by the way, go like and share and comment on. Anyway, if you have a feeling one way or the other on this, contact me or comment on the podcast and let me know if this is something of interest or of use to you. How many of you have read the founding documents? How many of you know what the founding documents are? For instance, how many rights are guaranteed to us in the First Amendment to the Constitution? What are those rights? Any idea? Have you read the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence? How about the Federalist Papers? I don't believe that this country replaces Israel or that we're the promised land, but I do believe that the existence of the United States of America was determined before creation by our sovereign God for very specific purposes. Therefore, I believe our founding was divinely protected and our documents were divinely inspired so as to allow our country to fulfill whatever our purpose was and is in his plan. As such, I believe that knowing our documents is important, and being transparent, I don't know them as well as I should. Some I don't really know at all. My guess is that you're probably in the same Delaware River crossing rowboat as I am. To remedy this, I plan to take one segment of the podcast per week and slowly walk through the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and the Federalist Papers. Now, commentary will vary, but I'll endeavor to keep it pithy as best I can. My plan is to break these documents up into bite-sized chunks, as the language, and more so the content, is very heavy. It's very rich. It's much like reading the Bible. The overall message is fairly easy to comprehend, but without understanding the component parts of the message, the message can be corrupted through misinterpretation, misunderstanding, or outright manipulation. We easily see this in both the world of Christianity and our system of government today. So, without further ado, let's dive into episode one of The American Genesis. 
Let's start by declaring our independence. This declaration was unanimously signed by the 56 total representatives from the 13 colonies meeting at the Second Continental Congress on July 4, 1776. This, not the 1619 date that's being pushed by the woke, anti-racist, or Black Lives Matter, which is actually a pro-racism Marxist movement, America-hating leftists, is the birth date of our country, and always will be. The Declaration was written and signed after lodging many grievances about the many various forms of oppression on the colonies imposed by the Crown, and after many trips back and forth to England to redress grievances to no avail. As we'll read, this declaration was written and signed after lodging many grievances about the many various forms of oppression on the colonies imposed by the crown, and after many trips back and forth to England to redress grievances to no avail. As we'll read, this decision for a small group of men in a small sliver of a nation to declare independence from the superpower of the world was not made without great thought, great debate, and an understanding of the consequences of their actions, both from the British Empire as well as the loyalist colonial population that stood with the British crown. We read these words today somewhat dismissively, but for them to take up the quill and permanently pen their names at the bottom of this document had to be a terrifying act for all, no matter how right one felt, no matter how much one was itching for a fight. This declaration was unheard of and was for all intents and purposes a declaration of war on the British war machine. I'm going to break this up into three parts. The first chunk will be the opening, overall reasoning why our founding fathers made this declaration. The second part, next week, will be the specific grievances the founders had against the king. And the third part will be the conclusion of this relatively short document. I'll read this slowly. I'll try to put the emphasis in the right places to help with understanding. But know that there is a massive amount of info packed into this document, so you may need to re-listen or take me off of 1.5 speed, or read it yourself. So, as we ready our fireworks, our grills, our sweet black socks and sandals, let's find out why we have the freedom to celebrate our freedom. The Declaration reads as follows. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. 
Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Now, this is where the opening ends, and it follows with, quote, to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Now, we will look at the proof next time, and one grievance that did not make it into the final draft that will most likely surprise you. But what have we learned so far? Well, let me make a few points, and then I'll let you go back to re-listen or read the document yourself for greater understanding if you so desire. The opening paragraph makes it clear that they did this out of a sense of must, not could. They had no other option. The gap between the two sides and the oppressive nature of the one side was to a point that could not be repaired. And there is much talk today that the gap, now by all appearances a gulf, between the political right and left in the United States is to a point that could never be closed again. I'd maintain that the gulf actually falls along the lines of belief in maybe not the Christian religion, but definitely the Christian morals, ethics, and guidelines for all humanity. So are we at this point once again, a long train of abuses and usurpations? Well, I'll let you determine your own answer to that question, but I think at a minimum we're getting closer, and we will reach that point if something doesn't change. To my point of our current condition in America, the first paragraph is one sentence, and in that first sentence they make very clear reference that God is the one that grants rights and freedom, not man that the rights that God has granted all humanity were being violated to a point that could no longer be overlooked. The rights cited by the founders that God has granted us are first creation in equality as humanity. And this does not mean we will all have equal outcomes or even equal opportunities, but rather that we are all image bearers of God. We're all granted the common grace granted to all humanity, and we all should have certain rights that no man should take away. Although clearly these rights have been trampled on by mankind all throughout history. One would have to argue that Adam himself was the cause of our loss of our rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we've been scratching and clawing to attain whatever semblance we can of the intent of the original creation ever since. But the sin of pride and greed is pervasive among mankind. Thus, the point in history the Continental Congress found themselves in, oppression of their rights by a proud, greedy tyrant. Looking at those three rights specifically, we see that the right to life, all humans, all Americans, have the right to their own life. No man has the right to take your life from you. However, by your actions, biblically, you can forfeit your right to your own life. 
This right alone should have eliminated slavery. We'll discuss that more next time. And should today eliminate abortion, as that unborn baby is an American, a human, that has the right to life granted to it by God. Not mom, not dad, not the doctors, the media, or the politicians. Next, the right to liberty. Again, we all have the right to be free people, to pursue the course of our life. It's often stated in various ways that your freedom ends where mine begins. As long as what you want to do doesn't harm someone else, and of course harm has to be clearly defined, then fine, it's up to you. This is the biblical principle, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So to bring this to a raging debate today, does that mean one person can mandate that another person be injected by something termed a vaccine? Some pastors and religious leaders have said yes. They've said that if you don't get the shot, you're not following that commandment. And I would argue it depends. The problem that most people have with this particular shot is simply a matter of return on investment. If the shot truly worked like vaccines that we have used for decades, if the shot had the same level of potential adverse reactions as other vaccines, and if this virus was proven to be as dangerous or deadly to all demographics as was initially claimed, then I'd maintain an even larger majority of the population would acquiesce to the loss of some of their liberty in order to love their neighbor. The problem is that none of those cases were made to the satisfaction of many people, to the point that many believe this literally does nothing for your neighbor and potentially harms your own self made in the image of God. And that is, or should be, the right to liberty, the right to determine for your own self what your own self does and doesn't do, while not infringing on the liberty of others, while respecting the life God has given you, and while loving your neighbor in the best way you can. Finally, the right to happiness. This isn't a guarantee of a happy life. This is the right to pursue happiness in our lives. Happiness can be defined many ways, and some have very twisted sinful views of what makes them happy, but that moves us back to liberty. If what makes you happy infringes on the liberty or life or happiness of others, you do not have that right. And incidentally, you're not loving your neighbor were you to do that. Now, there appears to be much speculation as to why Jefferson penned life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness rather than property. I don't know that anyone can say definitively what was in Jefferson's mind, but we'll do a bit of speculation in the next episode of The American Genesis. The charge of the governing bodies is to protect these rights, not to grant or oppress them just to protect them. The crown was not protecting those rights, and after a very extended period of very clear oppressions, it was time to break away. In fact, the founders called it their duty to break away and get out from under the oppressive British king. There are those that argue that we were wrong in doing this, that the Bible commanded us to stay in oppression and let God work things out. Romans 13 says, quote, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now what we know is that the king was appointed by God or else he wouldn't have been there. We also know that the founding fathers and the colonies in general had been under oppression and trying to work with the king for many years to right the wrongs. Now, could this be God's wrath on the colonists? I'd have a hard time going there, but I'm not God. What I do know is that this was God's plan or else it wouldn't have happened. Further, we know that the king was not upholding his end of that passage in Scripture, nor was he upholding his charge as found in Colossians or Ephesians, quote, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Rather, he was acting not as God's servant, a terror to bad actors, but he was being a tyrant, a terror to those that did him no wrong. The king was our master and was not fulfilling his command. He was also a servant, a subject to the king of kings, and was not acting as Romans 13 said either. So did that give us the right to declare our independence? I'll let you decide. Bottom line, that's what we did, and the founders were very clear in their overall reasoning as to why. So on the next episode of The American Genesis, we'll take a look at these specific grievances, as I said earlier, and a very specific grievance that was not included in the final draft, and then in episode 3, we'll cover the rest of the Declaration, the actual intent of the document, what it meant at that time, and what it means today. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.